0: Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow In the 1840s, European settlers arrived in Waitakere, New Zealand some buying huge blocks of land from the Maori Ngāti Whātua tribe. Our digression is seven decades after this, when a handful of small rural settlements were now in existence in West Auckland. Intrepid souls came out to log the kauri trees, to dig the kauri gum, and to turn flax into rope. Over time, orchards and wineries grew on land already denuded of kauri. A brickwork supplying a familiar red block first appeared in the 1860s. Waitakeri was quiet, largely rustic, and enveloped in bush. The local word for local forest. Now on those red bricks, it is 1910 and a couple of young kids are out exploring the mangrove swamps in a small, leaky rowboat. Mangroves like this are still out there now, though the creeks, streams and inlets, well they were much deeper then as a general rule. With little expectation of finding anything man-made, These two kids pushed on through twisting, convoluting waterways till they stumbled across an archway made of those red clay bricks. Someone had tunneled into the shoreline, cutting a small harbour just beyond the arch. Beyond that, an orchard full of apple, plum and pear trees. Further tunnels were cut into the shoreline, containing storerooms for apples, a fairly rudimentary shack and a library. Docked up was a seaworthy vessel called the Arwateer, and on board a man presumed dead for close to a decade. Now this man is a diversion from our main tale, but he's worthy of a little explanation. Henry Swan was born in Gateshead, England around 1856. Born to wealthy railroad investors, Henry wanted for nothing growing up. He studied law, and on graduation went straight into partnership with the firm Arnott & Swan. He worked at Arnott & Swan till the mid-1890s, and afterwards packed up and moved to New Zealand with his wife Edith. Now I can't say for sure what he wanted out of New Zealand, but Devonport on Auckland's North Shore. Even now a village with more than its share of Victorian English charm, wasn't it? Henry became increasingly restless, and in 1901 bought the Awatere. One reason for buying the boat, in 1895, an American adventurer named Joshua Slocum set off on a record-breaking voyage in his own sloop. A little over three years later, he returned, becoming the first person to circumnavigate the world alone. His book, Sailing Alone Around the World, retold Slocum's voyage. In 1901, this book was quite a popular new release. So Henry Swan announced to Edith he was following in Slocum's footsteps. Little did his friends or family know, but he'd quietly bought 69 acres of land near Henderson Creek. He sold all but 13 acres of it, of which he kept for himself. And while Henry's friends and family all thought he was lost at sea, he was there living the simple life. He toiled in his orchard, crossbreeding fruit trees. He read his books, He swam in the creek, when word got out there was a hermit in the creek. Curious visitors started to show up. Henry, it turns out, enjoyed their company. He made friends in the area and started to dig further into the embankments to make a wading pool where local kids could learn to swim. A fire and later flooding wrecked much of his orchard, library and shack in the 1920s. Henry Swan continued to live on his boat beyond the Brick Archway, till his death in 1931, age 75. Edith lived on till 1940, in Devonport, apparently none the wiser as to her husband's fate. I mention Henry's tale as, Though the water is long gone, a portion of the arch remains along Central Park Drive in Henderson. When I used to teach at a West Auckland high school, I would pass the arch most mornings, and when I have explained the origin of Swan's Arch to a couple of friends, they were mostly surprised and had never heard the tale before. Although everyone knows the landmark. So to any curious Westies out there listening, there you go. But Henry Swan is also an example of pseudocide. The practice of faking one's own death to begin life anew. New Zealand has, it turns out, a few notable tales to tell on that subject. Take, for example, Grace Oakshot. Grace Oakshott was born in Hackney, England in 1872 to Elizabeth and James Cash. The Cash family were upwardly mobile, James making a good living selling stationery. They were also progressives who believed women deserved many of the same opportunities as men, education included. Because of this, Grace and her sisters received a good education and Grace would go on to study at Cambridge University for a year in 1893. At this point, Cambridge had begun admitting women, but not yet allowing them to gain any qualifications for their hard work. They could only sit an exam referred to as a little go, and presumably could tell people that they had given university a little go having done it. In the years following Cambridge, Grace became involved in activism, She was briefly a teacher, but then became a factory inspector for the Women's Industrial Council, a group concerned with women's wages and workplace safety. Sometime in the early 1890s, she met and fell in love with Harold Oakeshott, a tea-taster by day, socialist activist by night. The couple married in 1896. Though a tea-taster, Harold was very far from a teetotaler. Unbeknownst to most who knew him, Harold was a raging alcoholic. In 1899, Grace and Harold joined Grace's brother on a sailing holiday. Also on the jaunt, a young medical student, a friend of Grace's brother, named Walter Reeve. A good time was had by all, and afterwards all went back to their day-to-day drudgery. They repeated their holiday the following year and the first signs appeared that Grace and Walter were fond of one another, one night as the two went on a moonlit boat ride. Harold was not able to join him, having drunken himself into a stupor. Following this holiday, not only did Grace, Harold and Walter keep in touch, the three became inseparable. And then nothing much happened until 1907. In 1907, Walter came out of his time at medical school and was looking for opportunities in New Zealand. One view of New Zealand in 1907 was that it was a burgeoning, working-class utopia. Sometime in 1840, a carpenter named Samuel Parnell started the eight-hour workday by simply refusing to work any longer. And this took off with a whole lot of other workers, and it became commonplace. In September 1893, owing to a lot of lobbying, women gained the right to vote in elections. Universal male suffrage wouldn't even come to the UK until 1918. New Zealand was there in 1879. Now, while I don't want to gloss over all manner of issues New Zealand had at the time, largely around the treatment of Maori and Asian immigrants, it was seen as a worker's paradise, where the proletariat had no need to doff one's cap to their supposed betters. But back to Walter's job opportunities. Grace's unhappy marriage and, well, poor old Harold. Grace had, by then, fallen in love with Walter. She wanted nothing more than to move to New Zealand as well. But being now of a respected class, she counted H.G. Wells and William Morris among her friends. She felt divorce was not an option. On August 27th, 1907, Grace travelled to Brittany in France for a holiday. One day, and for some reason I imagine as a stormy, inky dark night, the water frigid and crashing hard on the beach. Uh, this was in summer, and I have no idea if it happened in the nighttime or the daytime. Grace folded her clothes on the beach, went out for a swim, and was never seen again. Now Joan Reeve, on the other hand, newly wedded to Dr. Walter Reeve, appears to have swum to the next beach, got dressed, met her husband and on 26 September boarded a ship first for Australia, and then to New Zealand. Joan and Walter settled in Gisborne. They had three children together. Joan became involved in local activism, earning an MBE for her hard work. Joan Reeve, formerly Grace Oakeshott, died of multiple sclerosis, 11th December 1928. And at the very least, it can be said she had two decades of wedded bliss with the man she loved. My final case study is altogether far murkier. Take a quick break, and we will come back to that, but we needs must first come back to the Reeves. Now New Zealand was the first nation to give women the right to vote in democratic elections. One major reason for this was, since the 1880s there had been a big push to ban alcohol by the women's Christian temperance movement. While some politicians were pushing for the enfranchisement of women from the late 1870s, primarily due to the influence of utilitarian thinkers like John Stuart Mill, there was a faction swayed by an opposition to the demon drink, and a few others were likely populists who recognised women were a large potential voting base for them. When women got the right to vote in 1893, under a Prime Minister, well technically Premier, named Richard Seddon. While he was a former pub landlord and Prohibition did not naturally follow. In December 1917, the Prohibitionists did get a partial ban. A law passed which forced bars to close at 6pm. Now this had a range of unexpected side effects. First, the Publicans were relieved by this law as this meant an end to the meddling of the Prohibitionists. Second, it caused the six o'clock swell. Most drinkers finished work at five, rushed to their locals, then tried to force an evening's worth of booze down their necks in the space of an hour. One could guess how that often worked out. And third, it created opportunities for petty criminals to make easy money by setting up sly grogs and beer houses after-hours bars and suburban homes. For the following five decades, the Sly Grogs operated, catering to ship and dock workers, beatniks, rugby league players, boxers, rich folk who liked to slum it, and career criminals. These secretive clubs were, it turned out, also instrumental in embedding organised crime networks in New Zealand. And the six o'clock swell was very much a thing on December 7th, 1963, when Eric Lewis, a landlord, banged on the door of 115 Bassett Road, Remuera. He was there to collect the rent from the tenants, and when nobody answered, Lewis dodged a growing pile of milk bottles and unlocked the door. Upon cracking that front door, the landlord was hit by the stench of two bodies on the turn. In the front bedroom, the bodies of Kevin Spate, a 26-year-old sailor, and George Knucklehead Walker, a 34-year-old with a reputation as a gangland enforcer. Both men had been shot to death by a rising submachine gun, as unreliable a gun as you could hope for in the early 1960s. This was evidenced by the fact that only six bullets were found in the victims. It's thought the gun jammed at this point. Now this didn't stop the Truth newspaper framing the killing as our version of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Their headline, Chicago Comes to Auckland. The police arrived and examined the scene. They ascertained the property had been used as a sly grog, and they took evidence. And at this point they had absolutely no idea who could have done such a thing. A few days later, however, the police were visited by future Prime Minister of New Zealand, Rob Muldoon with the politician. A chef who had a story to tell. The chef was visited at work just after the killings by an old friend named John Gillies. Gillies was a petty thief who had recently been expelled from Australia. He'd shown up that night blind drunk and had a tale to tell. As Gillies told it, one general sent another general a telegram. Grenades are on the way. The other general, well, they naturally got machine guns. Gillies told his friend some big trouble was on the way. When the bodies were found, the chef put two and two together. Now, New Zealand was not a place full of machine gun murders. And don't get me wrong. Some soldiers were believed to have come back from World War II and held on to their guns on returning to civilian life. It was also said smuggling all manner of illicit goods into the country was not terribly difficult at the time. And there's a story that in 1934, a group of thieves stole a vicar's machine gun from a New Lynn church, where it had been stored by a group of territorial army men. The culprits had never been caught, but in a country where murder itself was a rarity, death by machine gun was unheard of. Now, the gun, of course, was public knowledge. That the police had found two disarmed grenades and a telegram threatening another sly grogger, well, that was not known outside of the investigation. Now, after some effort by the police, the tale did unravel. And the short version is this. In the weeks leading up to the murder, Gillies was badly beaten up while trying to break up a domestic incident between a bouncer from a rival club in Anglesey Street, Ponsonby and his girlfriend, his ego probably more bruised than his body. Gillies swore revenge on the bouncer, Barry Machine Gun Shaw, so named for mowing down other rugby players on the rugby field as a younger man. Not really anything to do with machine guns at this point. Gillies found a friend of a friend who collected rare guns, and this friend of a friend, the son of a wealthy clothing manufacturer, had a machine gun. Quick sidebar on this, a teenage John Banks, a rather unpleasant guy who was once mayor of Auckland, saw the machine gun a week before the shooting. Now his family were underworld figures, and the tale has it Banks got to fire that machine gun. When Gilly showed up at the Anglesey Street Sly Grog to Machine Gun Machine Gun, he found Shaw had taken the night off. With nothing else to do, he entered, bought a drink, and got talking to a couple of blokes there. They happened to be the owners of the Sly Grog. Now the pub was run by an aging sailor with a teenage girlfriend, a man named Jerry Wilby, and a hard-boiled creme named Ron Jorgensen. A few drinks in, Gillies told him what he was there for, he got his gun out, and somebody offered him a little work. Gillies and a second person would go to 115 Bassett Road and deal to spate. The issue, it seems, Wilby A man who, it must be said, never faced charges over anything around this. Well, he was a man in his 60s who only needed his 17-year-old girlfriend when he was on land. And he was very happy for her to see other men while he was away. When home, however, he expected her to be all his. Now Mary, his girlfriend, had fallen for Spate while Wilby was away. And likewise, Spate had fallen in love with Mary and intended to take her away from him. This had led to some angry scenes and angry telegrams and threats of grenades. And when John Gillies walked into that pub that night, it must have been manna from heaven for Mr. Wilby. After Jorgensen made a call to the operator for driving instructions to Bassett Road, two people left for the property. Now the police had Gillies dead to rights and as much as he was the man who had the machine gun. He had dumped it off the Harbour Bridge after the shooting, but he was seen around with it and it could be easily traced back to him. But there was very little evidence actually pointing towards Jorgensen. Both men were convicted of the murder and given life sentences. But bringing us back to pseudocide, Ron Jorgensen became something of a celebrity while in prison. He learned to speak Maori and translated Maori language books into braille. He also learned to paint proving extremely adept at it. His lawyer, Peter Williams, and I should mention to the Kiwis listening, we are talking Peter Williams QC, not Peter Williams Newsreader. Well, he launched a campaign to release Jorgensen. Though the campaign got a lot of support, Jorgensen never got his retrial. He was released in the mid-1970s, but was soon returned after getting caught up in a drug ring. He served his time until 1983, then was paroled to his father's home in Kaikoura, a former whaling town on the other side of the country, where you can now go to shoot whales with a camera. I've never been there myself, but Jorgensen hated being stuck with his father in small-town New Zealand. He continued to paint, but never saw much value back for his works. His paintings were largely given away for beers, and many of which have since gone on to make thousands of dollars at auction. Now, generally not allowed to leave town, he did get approval to help his friend, the property tycoon Bob Jones, and his New Zealand party run for parliament. He got to go to the nearby city of Christchurch. Bob Jones never got a single politician over the line, but he stole enough of the right-wing vote to knock Rob Muldoon's National Party out of contention. Of course, Muldoon wasn't helping himself. His slurred, drunken announcement of a snap election said it all, really. I'll let Bob himself tell you. Have so we got a date, Prime Minister? Uh, we've got a date, the 14th of July, which we've worked out at Government House as being the appropriate date. That doesn't give you much time to run up to an election, Prime Minister. Doesn't give my opponents much time to run up to an election, does it? Thank you, Mr Muldoon. Muldoon's run as Prime Minister was over. Soon after, Ron Jorgensen's car was found down the bottom of a cliff near the ocean. When police reached the wreck, there was no body inside. Had he been inside, there was little to no chance he could have crawled out of the wreck. The car had compacted in on itself. And up on the cliff top, there were no brake marks. It is believed Ron Jorgensen faked his own death by pushing the vehicle over the edge. He was never conclusively seen again. Now this is where it does get a bit murky. One theory has it. After ditching the car, he boarded a boat, which took him out to another vessel headed for Australia. In the years since, a handful of former friends and even a prison guard claimed to have seen him in Perth, Western Australia. Another theory has that he may have gone to Australia, but only after sharing information with police about a drug ring running out of Christchurch. The theory presumes he was using his time in Christchurch to do business with a drug ring. Soon after his disappearance, a large drug bust went down. Had Jorgensen turned informer, afterwards being resettled across the ditch? A third theory meets somewhere in the middle. Jorgensen faked his own death and was on a boat, out at sea, when he was murdered and thrown overboard. This is a theory many of his friends from the underworld believe. While I'd say the case of Ron Jorgensen is unlikely ever to be solved, I should sign off by pointing out sometimes the truth does out many years later. The disappearance of Grace Oakeshott was not uncovered until a century after she'd faked her own death. Joan Reeves, great-granddaughter, wrote a play about her great-grandmother. This came to the attention of Jocelyn Robson, an academic based in England who specializes in the female activists of Grace's time. Robson found society photos of Joan and put two and two together. And who knows, something similar could still happen in the case of Ron Jorgensen. Stranger things have happened. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice, and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. Love to see you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.